As we come now before the Word of God, if you'd like to read along with me, we'll be in the book of Genesis. We're reading our way through Genesis, and we're, well, as far as chapter 2. So, uh, so this is Genesis in chapter 2. And before we read, would you please uh, pray with me? Our Lord, it is uh, our desire that we would be a people who honors you, a people that is wise to what is good and innocent to what is evil, and it's your word that reveals these things to us. Uh, you've told us that those who, who hear and, and do these things is like a wise man who has built his house on a rock, that it's stable and true, and we want to be like that. So help us now to hear and see these things to listen and to believe. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Genesis in chapter 2. If you were here last week, there'll be a bit of an overlap with what we read before, but that's all right. Genesis chapter 2, I'll begin in verse uh, 8 and read a good number of verses. So Genesis chapter 2, beginning in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Delium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This is the word of God. Now, last week, we looked at the man here, uh, who's not named yet, but, uh, but Adam, this guy Adam in the Garden of Eden, specifically in the way that God formed him and us. That is, that we are made of dust of the earth and of the very breath of God. That is something that gives humans both humbleness and honor. That was last week. But this week, we're turning our attention to another prominent feature of the garden. Not just to focus on Adam, but to focus on trees. Do you notice that as we read? The trees seem to be an important part here. We see in this text that the, the Lord 
plants a garden in Eden. And out of the ground then, in this newly formed garden, he makes to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. So, so in this garden, so that's not all of creation, it's just this little small patch of earth, we now have this orchard of, of fruit and nut trees, I suppose, things that are, that are good to eat. That's part of God's goodness and abundance, and God says, eat. Eat, eat, eat of these trees. But then there are two trees in particular that are singled out and appointed by God for a special purpose. We first hear of them in verse 9 here. One of the two trees plays a much larger role in the whole of Scripture. It ends up re-emerging even in the last pages of the Bible in Revelation at the new heavens and the new earth. But it plays a lesser role in the text that we're reading today, so we're going to have to leave that tree for another day. That's the tree of life. But the other of these two trees only appears in the Eden narrative in Genesis. And then it disappears off the pages of the Bible. That doesn't mean that this particular tree is unimportant. In fact, it has a critical role in what comes of man and even of all creation. This is the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We'll focus our attention on this. Let me read again the pertinent verses, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree... Of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, in the rest of our time, we, we want to unpack three questions now about this particular tree, about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. One, what is it? Two, why is it? And three, how does it go? What is it? Why is it? How does it go? Let's look at the first of those questions. What is it? What is this tree? What's it about? In the first mention of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which is quite the title, right, for a tree, that title introduces a word into the narrative of Genesis that the reader has not heard yet in the book. One of the words associated with the tree, we've heard a lot already in the text, and that's the word good. If you know anything about Genesis or the first chapter, good shows up a lot. The light is good. The Lord looks and sees the sea and the earth, and it's good, and the, the plants and the trees, and he says, hey, they're good. The sun, moon, stars, good. Birds, fish, animals, good. Good, 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 good. That word shows up a lot in the final evaluation at the end of chapter 1 as God looks at it all and says, ah, this is all very good. So good we know, but here, here is where we get the first mention of the opposite of good. The Hebrew, I won't I'll try not to lean too much into old languages, but the Hebrew for the word for the opposite of good is the word raw. Not raw, as in raw meat, R-A-W, raw. It's a Hebrew word. So this is the tree of the knowledge of good and raw. Now, what is raw? If we were to keep reading in the Bible, we'd bump into this word quite a bit as well. 
It shows up uh, a bunch of times in Genesis, but much later there's, a, there's an example of good and ra showing up. So, so in, the, in the days of Egypt, when the people are about to be in Egypt, there's Joseph who's in Egypt with the Pharaoh, and Pharaoh has a bunch of odd dreams. Maybe you're familiar with these. They're, they're foreshadowing these years of plenty and years of want that are coming in Egypt. But in this dream that, that Pharaoh has, yeah, he has bizarre dreams like many of us have. And, and at the beginning, he sees seven cows. And he describes them as plump and attractive cows who are grazing on the grass. But then he sees a set of seven more cows who he describes as poor, ugly, and thin. And those poor, ugly, thin cows gobble up the first set of cows. Now, Joseph comes in as the interpreter of this dream, and, and he describes the first set of cows as good and the second set of cows as raw or bad. We've got the good cows and the bad cows. This sort of thing is very familiar to us, right? If you're eating a carton of blueberries you just got from the store, you peel off the top, and you're eating them right out of the package, maybe you washed them, Maybe if you're adventurous, you didn't wash them first. Uh, but but you, you pick them out, and, and you eat the ones that are good, right? But then uh, there's a few in there that might be, well, bad. Maybe they're rotten, moldy, mushy, squished, something about that that makes it bad. Maybe you just kind of toss those if you're outside. Uh, so with this carton of blueberries, you have good ones and bad ones. Badness, listen to me now, badness is not all a product of the fall or of sin. That is, in the Garden of Eden, before Adam and Eve's sin, there would be a kind of bad there too. So you can imagine there's plenty of fruit trees. And in some of those trees, that fruit begins to ripen, and then it gets ripe enough that eventually it, it, it does what? It, it drops off the branch, and it lays on the ground, and it turns to mush, and, and then the ants and the worms get it. That's a bad fruit, at least for Adam to eat, right? And if Adam and Eve had kids at this point, you know their kids are going to want to go up and try to eat that fruit, ants and all, right off the ground, and go, no, 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 that's yucky. That happens still in the Garden of Eden. So uh, raw or bad in that sense means that it's in some way unfit for its good purpose. That's what raw means. It's unfit for its good purpose. Which means that raw doesn't always refer to moral things evil things. It could, but not always. You know, fruit could be mushy or inedible, but it's not wicked if it's mushy. And the cows in Pharaoh's dream, even though they weirdly kind of cannibalize each other, which is very odd, they're bad, not because they're morally wicked cows, they're bad because they're so thin that you can see their bones. We have tons of examples of this, right? A bad battery might be useless, but it's not evil. A bad, if you have bad breath, it might be stinky, but it's not evil. If you have a bad back, it might be painful, but the back itself isn't evil, right? 
However, if you have something like a bad temper, that now has a moral component, and that is evil. It is sin. So most translations, including mine, call this not the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, although they could say that, that's the scope. They translate it as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because this tree now is referring to some ethical, moral component. There is a kind of bad that is about being unfit for a good moral purpose. To translate it then as evil is the way we typically see this word used after the time in the garden. So Noah, in the days of his flood, the cause of the flood in Noah's days was because man was raw. It's the Hebrew. Not just that he was bad in the sense of useless or smelly or painful, but because there was moral wickedness in his heart. We hear this in chapter 5, verse or chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw that the, the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's a moral component here. So now the focus of the tree here in the garden has a similar sort of moral component. It's not just about what works well and what doesn't. This tree is then tied to the very command of God about fruit that they were forbidden to eat. So this tree is about obedience and disobedience, good and evil, which means it's not just that the fruit itself is good or bad, but that the fruit of this tree in some way is going to give knowledge, give access to knowledge to good and evil. That's what the tree is about. Now, why is this tree here? We've got a tree that's about access to good and evil, knowledge of good and evil. Why is it here? And I've heard this question from a bunch of people uh, over the years, and I've even wondered it at points myself. So, so we've got God, Holy Lord, planting a tree and he tells the man not to eat the fruit of the tree or he's going to die. And God puts that tree right smack dab in the middle of a garden. You ever wondered why it's that way? I mean, why not put the tree like off on the side, right? Maybe along the edge, put a little fence around it. Maybe some thorns would grow up there in a big old keep out sign. You know, or, or, you know, why not? Why even put it in the garden at all? Just like stick it on the other side of the garden or even just put it clear on the opposite side of the world. Or even, how about this? Why even plant a tree like this at all? Have you wondered this? I mean, in some way, especially if you're going to die, eat the fruit, it seems like putting a bottle of Drano on the kitchen table. You know, that just seems like it's doomed for disaster. Why would God do this? God doesn't spell out all of his reasoning here, nor does he need to. <laughs> we know uh, good parents 
often have good, clear rationale for things that they don't have to explain or justify to their kids. Their kids don't always understand or need that explanation. So there remains a little bit of a curtain over this for us, but that doesn't mean we're without things at all. We can confidently say a few things about this from the character of God. We know that God is not a trickster. You know, he's going to put the tree in the garden for fun to try to tempt and entice them to eat the fruit and fall into sin. Nor is God, a, you know, a, a scientist. You might love scientists, but God's not conducting an experiment here where, where he sets marshmallows on a plate, a plate in front of kids just to see what they're going to do. Nor is God some sort of, like, game show host giving you the, you know, door number one or door number two. Tree number one, tree number two, tree number two, tree number four, don't pick this one. You know, some people would say, God, you know, God has to give people free will. God has to give people some sort of choice as if choice is some sort of ultimate premier thing. That sort of approach runs the risk of setting free will above even God. That's idol worship and that's not what's happening here. So the tree of knowledge of good and evil is not a test. It's not a trick, nor is it a required alternative. Each of those things would make the tree itself a bad thing in a good garden, a pretty but poisonous tree. This tree is part of God's very good creation with a very good purpose from God. And it would seem as if the reason why God plants it here is because God is a good shepherd. The tree then is a gift designed to teach and to train the man in the knowledge of good and evil. Let me tell you why I say that. When we look at the knowledge of good and evil, that phrase or some form of that phrase, as it's used throughout the scripture, it is a good thing. The knowledge of good and evil is a good thing. It's often described as wisdom. So the request of King Solomon was God, give me a discerning mind that I would discern and know good from evil. That's his prayer. And the Lord grants that as a blessing to Solomon. That's not a curse. That's even the goal for all Christians, that we would know good and evil. It's a mark of maturity. The author of Hebrews gets after us even about it. Uh, so I'll let him speak instead of myself. Hebrews chapter uh, five at the very end, verse 13. Everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he's a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. This is a good thing. Jesus even says a similar sort of things to his disciples when he says, listen, when you go out there, I want you to be as shrewd as serpents and as innocent as doves. 
by which he means, I don't want you to enter into sin. I don't want you to make practice of sin. In that sense, be innocent as doves. But, but you need to be well aware of sin, to know temptations, to know the presence of these things everywhere, to be shrewd enough to discern good from evil. So to be naive about this is never praised as a virtue in Scripture. Some people seem to think that's the goal to be naive, that we'll just tuck ourselves into a corner and avoid it all. You cannot hide your kids. You cannot hide yourselves in some sort of Christian bubble forever. That's not good. It only stunts your growth and makes you easily fooled. God wants his people not to be ignorant infants with our eyes shut, but to be aware adults with our eyes open. It's a consistent theme throughout the scripture. So now, in Genesis, we've got Adam and soon Eve, who are, well, new to the place. New creations, new to the earth. They're not babies. They're created as fully grown adults, but they've still got a lot to learn, right? They've got a lot to learn about water and weather, about uh, plants and pleasures and birds and beasts, and also about good and evil. They need to learn this. And, and in this garden of God's abundant life, amidst these fields and fields of fruit and nut trees and other foods, God then gives the man only one single, simple, uncomplicated prohibition to focus all of man's moral attention on as he needs to learn that man may eat of any tree except this one. And with that command, this tree then is intended not to withhold the knowledge of good and evil, but to give the knowledge of good and evil. That it's good for God to put it smack dab in the middle of the garden to train them in moral maturity to learn that true wisdom would be gained and trained through trust and obedience to God. And by not eating the fruit of this tree, Adam and Eve would grow wise in the knowledge of good and evil. There are many people, even Christians, who do not see life this way that to remove or refrain from anything would be good at all. You know, some people think that to, to abstain or refrain from anything means that you get less in the end. You miss out. You're somehow repressed or suppressed. And, and C.S. Lewis, well, has a beef with that. He has a beef with a lot of things. The, the, the old theologian C.S. Lewis and his book, Mere Christianity, talks a lot about this. He says, no, no, when you refrain from these things in obedience to God, you're not getting less, you're getting more. He points out how, how we know and understand the most about sleep, 
when we're awake, right? We know the most about drunkenness when we're sober. We know the most about anger when we're cool-headed, that the absence of a thing can actually be training. So he talks about this in relation to sex and self-control. Here he mentions chastity, by which he means refrain, not just abstaining from sex altogether, but restraining from certain forms of sex that it would only be in accord with God's will. So he says this, those who are seriously attempting chastity are more conscious and soon know a great deal more about their own sexuality than anyone else. They come to know their own desires as Sherlock Holmes knew Moriarty, or as a rat catcher knows rats, or as a plumber knows about leaky pipes. Virtue, even attempted virtue, brings light, but indulgence brings fog. You see what he's saying here, to, to refrain from a thing, at least when that's in obedience of, to God, to refrain from a thing can be a source of greater knowledge of good and evil, to bring light, not darkness, to bring clarity, not fog. And that seems to be God's intention for this tree, to bring a good knowledge of good and evil. Now, this brings us to our third question. How does it go? If you know a little about your Bible, you probably know already how this story account unfolds. Adam and Eve, well, don't obey God in his only prohibition. They take the fruit, they eat of the forbidden fruit, and we'll look at that text in coming weeks, Lord willing, when it comes. But today I want us to see one important outcome of this. It's at the end of chapter 3 in verse uh, 22. This is one outcome of their disobedience and biting the fruit. Verse 22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Did you hear that? The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. The outcome of this, in biting the fruit, in disobeying, is that their eyes are opened. They do arrive at some sort of knowledge of good and evil. Not a full knowledge, but some sort of knowledge. That knowledge of good and evil was going to come one way or another. So the problem here is not that they have knowledge. God intended to train them in that knowledge. The problem is not that they have that knowledge. It's the way that they got it. For Adam and Eve, the knowledge of good and evil did not come through growth and maturity. It's not something that's given to them by God. It's something that they took. So what was intended was that through this obedience to God, through the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom, they would gain this knowledge of evil from the outside. 
and be able to see it with clarity. But what happened instead is they gained a knowledge of evil from the inside. They had the experience of of taking it for themselves, into themselves, even quite literally. And, and, And there's nothing, you know, magic about this fruit tree. This isn't, you know, Disney, where there's an enchanted apple from Snow White's witch, you know. It's simply just fruit that's forbidden. It's set off limits. So when that fruit is taken and eaten against God's command, willfully crossing a line into sin, there is something then about the heart that twists and cannot be untwisted. There's an experience of knowledge now that cannot be unknown as that line is crossed. We all know what this is like. Even in seemingly small things, the you know, first time you slip that little five-cent stick of gum in your pocket on the way out of the store, just because you can, or, or the little white lie you told to cover up something, just that one little piece right at the beginning, or the first time you say a mean thing to the kid on the playground, you know, any of those, we just catch this initial glimpse of what the heart is made of and what it's capable of. And the Bible describes this experience as a kind of real death. And God tells them that up front. In the day that you eat of it, you'll surely die. Here he's not talking about the physical death of the body. You know, the fruit's not toxic to eat like some sort of bad mushroom that's going to cause him to keel over. He's talking about a different kind of death, a death that's going to happen in the same day that you eat of it. And that happens. This death, it, it causes this separation, this rift between God and man that instead of walking with God in the garden in the cool of the day, now they run and hide from him out of guilt. Instead of living under the blessing of God to to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, they're now under the the curse of God, the shadow of exile from the garden. Instead of reigning with God as his appointed kings and queens over his creation, now sin and death reign in their place. And the rule of sin brings all this suffering and pain. There is now an experienced knowledge of evil within us that drains our lifeblood. So when Jesus comes to you, the earth is a man. He comes now as as this ray of light, as this way, truth, and life that as he grew up, he would grow in favor and knowledge and wisdom, not by taking that wisdom For himself, but through obedience, the scripture says, through the obedience of suffering. And in Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus then reclaims his crown and his people from sin. That's good news. I'm going to squeeze that in every sermon I can. That's good news that we need reminding of again and again and again just how much hope and life and peace Jesus brings for us. We need to know that. But that's not where I want us to end. I'm almost done. Give me two more minutes. 
I want to close with one implication of this tree for us. The Bible is not opposed to the knowledge of good and evil. It frequently calls this a good thing, that this knowledge would be something God wants us to seek and pursue. The book of Proverbs calls this knowledge a a, a treasure that's richer than gold and more precious than jewels, that, that wisdom is a tree of life to all who would lay hold of her. That's a good thing, but, but, listen, it matters very much how we go about attaining the knowledge of good and evil. Some people would say, you know, how can you know it unless you try it? Others would say, well, why would God set limits on a good thing? You should just go ahead and go for it. Or some might say, well, the ends justify the means. What's important is as long as you mean well. No, no. All of those things may open your eyes, but not in the way you want. In the end, those things will bring death. Instead, what we want is this, that by God's power and grace, we would patiently obey him in faith, that we would eat only of the fruit that God has given and not doubt his goodness but instead trust that the only wise God will give us true knowledge of good and evil in his time. Pray with me. Lord God, would you strengthen us and humble us by this word, that by your good gospel you would produce in us the sort of obedience of faith that you desire. Train us to be mature, to grow in a good knowledge of good and evil, to submit ourselves to you in this, and to be patient to trust you, that you would be forever glorified in us through Jesus. Work this in us, we pray, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.